Hi, I'm Patrick Henningsen, host of the Sunday Wire, and you are listening to the Alternate Current Radio Network. There was a, an incident on Oxford Street. I think this was on Friday evening. And this was reported out uh, initially as shots were fired. This was a, presumed to be a terrorist attack in Oxford Street, one of the biggest shopping streets in the world uh, in central London. This is Friday night. This is Black Friday, biggest shopping day of the year. Okay. Uh, everybody's out getting their deals, doing their initial uh, Christmas shopping and so forth. Okay, big day for business too, huge, uh, massive in terms of retail and everything, really important day for the economy. And what happens? Multiple 999 calls reporting shots fired uh, right around Oxford Circus, okay? And we know this area very well. I do as well. And uh, so panic erupted. And apparently there was a stamp, there were stampedes coming from the, to, away from the station. Uh, police were running around shouting at people to get indoors to shelter in place. These are the reports we have. I also have eyewitness reports from this, which are secondhand, uh, through people I know. And this, these were posted on my Facebook page, by the way. And so I'm looking at all this media coverage, Mike, and you'd think we thought, oh, something big's happening. And, of course, um, the, the, the boiler room uh, research team had already figured out what was going on uh, before, <laughs> before anybody did. And basically we worked out this was a stress test. And so this was either an, op- it was an operation that had been aborted or it was a stress test. And so, but nonetheless, Mike, event, and so RT sent, <laughs> sent two reporters down and, uh, one of them gave on the ground reporting. I think it was, you know, just a straight factual. This is what's happening. This is what we know. This is what we don't know. I think that was Issa Ali actually was on the ground doing really good professional reporting. And then they went to Afshin Ritanzi was down there, I think with his iPhone. Okay. And basically called it out as a non-event. Afshin did before anybody. So RT, uh, who's been maligned by the prime minister or from the government, the U.S. government, the British, the press, everything, all picking fun and uh, bullying and accusing RT of being uh, some kind of a Kremlin propaganda outlet. But they reported that story accurately before anybody else. Let's look at the mainstream reporting, Mike. This went out on the wires immediately on Yahoo News, and this was syndicated via Reuters. Basically, shots fired in Oxford Street. Police uh, attack teams uh, basically scrambled here. Panic erupted at Christmas shopping crowds on Oxford Street on Friday night and so forth. Okay, And then what Yahoo does and what the, what the wires do now, Mike, instead of posting a retraction or an update, they, they literally rewrite the article. And, and so, so this was the initial article was everyone's evacuated, possible terror attack. This goes out on the wires and then they don't even write update now. They just rewrite the, the article. So they pave over what they, all the panic which they caused. And who knows? People could have got injured in this. Well, uh, I'm sure people did. In the stampede and all this. So the police are uh, going around shouting, running around with guns that you've never seen guns as big, Mike. I have not seen commandos in Iraq. With guns as big as these guys running around, and then you have the the increment type 
looking team going down the escalators of the tube, all with the big guns, okay, scaring the you-know-what out of everybody who are out on doing sh- uh, shopping, shouting at people, telling them, you know, literally to get inside. And so, There was nothing. Nothing happened, Mike. There were no shots fired. Apparently, someone was moving barriers, and it made a loud crack sound, and they're saying that might have been the reason for the 999 calls was barriers being moved. Yeah, don't buy it. So if that's the if that's where we're at, that that if if either whether it was a false alarm or this was a drill which was meant to go live or it was just a just a basically a multi agency fusion drill run by Cobra or whoever, and in it somehow it got reported as a as an event. But what a time to run a drill, Mike, on on Black Friday on Sunday at at, at five p.m. you know or four p.m. at the height of rush hour. I mean, what a time to, to 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 sort of scramble something like this. Are there not people that could verify? I mean, there's cops everywhere in central London. Someone can verify whether shots were fired. Yeah. Like within a minute, right? So how did this happen? How did this come to be? And so I, I immediately I could see the hashtags, Mike. Hashtag resilient Britain, London strong, right? And so I didn't check all the Twitter feeds, but uh, – so what did what's going on here? Basically, the mainstream media went with the gag initially. RT, the real media, I'll call them the real media because they actually reported the real, the facts without jumping to conclusions. Uh, the mainstream media put the panic out immediately. Right. The, the clue here is in this word resilient. You've get, you've said it. Hashtag resilient. Resilient cities is a program. It's a policy agenda which is being pushed globally. Um, it's just one example of this is the 100 Resilient Cities Project. This is something which has come out of the Rockefeller Foundation. Uh, and, uh, well, here's here's a quote. The project says that crisis is the new normal for cities in the 21st century because of the collision of globalization, urbanization, and climate change. Not a week goes by when there's not a disruption to a city somewhere in the world, a cyber attack, a national disaster, or economic or social upheaval. Okay, pause right there. You just said it, Mike. Not a moment goes by that there's not a disruption to a city. They scrambled helicopters right. for this false alarm at Oxford Street. Major disruption. Guess what? It was completely fabricated. So they want us to be resilient, not against real threats per se. And I'm not saying there aren't real threats out there. There are real threats, right? But we have to be, what, resilient to false alarms? No, this is absolutely right. Is, but, that, is that what they're saying? No, but the false alarms are there to, 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 sorry, to condition people to accept the resilience agenda. And the resilience agenda is all about smart cities and surveillance and, and data gathering and all this and, and pre-crime and, and all this kind of stuff that we know is coming down the pipe. Real-time response. Real-time response. Real-time response. And this is, this is the policy which is driving that. And so when I saw this story, Mike, I thought immediately, I was like, you ever see that movie Airplane? Oh, absolutely. And he says, get me Rex Kramer, you know, in the crisis. And I was like, get me Peter Power. Here we go. Issue. Uh, today we were running an exercise for a company. Bearing in mind, I'm now in the private sector. And we sat everybody down in the city, a thousand people involved in the whole organization. But the crisis team, and the most peculiar thing was, we based our scenario on the simultaneous attacks on the underground and mainline station. So we had to suddenly switch an exercise from fictional to real. And one of the first things is, get that bureau number. When you have a list of people missing, tell them. And so it took a long to, time. Just to get this right, you were actually working today 
on an exercise that envisioned yes. virtually this scenario? Uh, almost precisely. I was up until 2 o'clock this morning because it, it's our job, my own company, Visor Consultants, we specialize in helping people to get their crisis management response. How do you jump from slow time thinking to quick time doing? And we chose a scenario with their assistance which is based on a terrorist attack because they're very close to uh, a property occupied by Jewish businessmen. They're in the city and there are more American banks in the city than there are in the whole of New York. A logical thing to do. And it, I've still so got how, the... I was going to say, how extraordinary today <laughs> must feel for you as, as it unfolds. You, you mentioned a few moments ago there our experience with Irish Republican terrorism. Yeah. And okay, Mike, that was from 7-7, 2005. That was Peter Power from a company called Visor Consultants. By the way, that same Peter Power, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be wrong, was on a BBC program a year earlier basically mindscaping out the same terrorist attack which happened on 7-7 which his company was running a drill simulation about a terrorist attack hitting the exact same underground stations and buses as what took place on 7-7 and it's just a coincidence we're told and so I thought hey, if there ever is anything heavy going down you definitely want to call Peter Power to find out what he knows uh, because he's definitely somebody who's in the know. Would you agree? Absolutely. He's a I mean, you know, <laughs> you, uh, earlier on you asked, was this event a drill which which may have gone live, could possibly have gone live? Uh, anybody that was in, in the slightest bit skeptical about that question, even asking that question to conspiratorial, you don't need any more evidence than, than what we've just listened to. What I just listened to um, now... How many years later is it? 12 years later. It just sounds ridiculous. It sounds almost comical. But at the time, it was like people were like so shocked mm -hmm. about what happened that they wouldn't even entertain the fact that anybody would have been so pernicious as to have been involved in some sort of live drill simulation fusion exercise that actually turned out to be a, a terrorist attack. But, but 12 years later, we can, look at, we can look at that in a more cold fashion and analyze what, what are we really looking at there, and it's just preposterous, actually, if you break it right down. So anyway, resilient Britain. What's interesting about this term resilience, Mike, and uh, I was discussing this with some colleagues during the week, and uh, it, this is marketed uh, towards individuals, Mike. So this is the state. I want to get your opinion on this. What do you think about this? The state marketing the term resilience towards the individual in Britain, and they're doing this more in this country than any other European country. Is this because that gets more traction here? Is that because we're more of an atomized society here? Uh, they've tried this in France, Mike, and it's just fallen flat on its face. They're not getting any penetration with this resilient France thing. The French don't, they're, they're not having it. They're basically, you know, two fingers in the air. Why should we be resilient? You guys should be doing your job. Whereas in Britain, it's it's been devolved down to the individual that we should be resilient and the state won't be able to protect us, we're told, in this country. These are the words of the prime minister and the authorities, Mike. I'm not, I'm not freelancing this conversation. I'm just telling you what the state is issuing. And you know because you've read and heard these same announcements. What do you think about this? I think that uh, you know, there's a lot to be critical of the French about. Uh, without question, the French have their particular uh, ways, but in this, they take no nonsense from government. And uh, you know, the French government, uh, European governments in general, they have a di very different 
uh, approach to the very different relationship between the individual and the state on the continent uh, than there is in Britain. That's the key. But in Britain, the British people, for some reason, absolutely determined to be guinea pigs in this massive psychological uh, experiment. We are having uh, all kinds of psycho experimentation done on the British people. Scotland has all kinds of uh, becomes the pilot scheme even before the rest of the UK does. Uh, but you know, and for whatever reason, the British people just lie back and accept it. I don't, I don't quite understand what the reason for that is, but we do. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, we and and who are the? You, you look at the Resilient Cities program, for example. And, and you look at the corporate interests that are pushing this forward, the likes of Microsoft and Cisco and all these big corporate companies, the same companies that are pushing automation and AI and all this kind of stuff. And uh, British people are watching on a day-by-day basis that we are watching the, the, uh, the what's the word? We're watching the, the, the quality of our jobs being reduced to the level where you know there's all this big debate about why Britain, British people aren't very productive at the moment because we have no high quality jobs left in this country, and at, in parallel with that, we're we're just getting all this psychological behavioural change agenda pushed on us on at such a daily basis. Change management. This change management. Yeah. And and we're just sucking it all in. There are high quality jobs in in, in Britain, Mike, but there there are few. They're few and far in between compared to maybe what they were in the past. Um, there are fewer high-quality jobs, and it, there, there, there's no growth in, in a lot of sectors, Mike. Uh, so look, Patrick. Wh- zero growth, uh, negative, negative growth, in fact, in pa- some areas. No, I, 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 I can't agree with that because, because uh, this country invented the Industrial Revolution, right? And, and we have no product product. We have no production, no productive jobs left. We've got coffee serving and and shelf stacking jobs. What happened to those jobs? We've got some retail jobs. What well, we gave them away to, to other countries. We offshored them? We offshored them, yes. Why did we offshore them? Uh, well, <laughs> why did we offshore them? That For uh, money, for, on the basis of cheap labor. Better, so better so, for the balance sheet? Well, uh, better for the share price dividends, better for the profit, right? Uh, well, absolutely. But, but, of course, Britain has been driving this gro- globalist trade uh, policy for so many years, uh, and part and parcel of that globalist trade policy was that uh, the first world countries would convert into post-industrial uh, economies, service economies, mm. uh, and uh, uh, yes, that's right? right, and, and we would we except would, for one, Germany, uh, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> but we, but as a general rule, we would I, I, we would send our productive capability to. Cheap labor comp- uh, countries like China, mm-hmm. uh, and but what have we done in the process? What we've done in the process is we've given away all our intellectual property to China as well. Yeah, that's uh, we're true. We're now in the point mm-hmm. where China is at least on a par, if not ahead of us. In fact, in fact, China in some areas is miles ahead of us. They're building maglev trains. They're building, you know, they're they're building technologies that we can only imagine in the West. Sure, they're producing more. I saw an alarming statistic. Uh, they they produce more PhDs. In one year, than Europe does in t- in a decade. Right? Isn't that crazy? 
More, right, more PhDs in one year China produces than, than all of Europe does in a decade. I, I mean, part of that, of course, is because just the sheer scale of the population in China, but yeah. but also the fact that the Chinese government has said, well, we're not going to be uh, the whipping boys of the West anymore. So they're driving innovation. They are driving innovation. Yeah. Uh, and and wow. have a much more positive outlook. You look at, you listen to, to, to our economic commentators in the West, and what are we talking about? We've got no money. We've got to have austerity. Uh, yeah. It's all doom and gloom and disaster. Zero growth. Wages are going to expect a wage. I, heard, I saw this, Mike, this week. Um, it was in a UK paper. I think it was, which one was it? The headline was, expect wage decreases or stagnant wage stagnation for the next two decades. Right. What kind of an announcement is that? Even if it's true, it's not the sort of thing you'd want to put on a newspaper headline. That wage stagnation for the next 20 years? It's not... I question the <laughs> the wisdom of even publishing that. So what if, of course, if it's true? But to say that that's demoralizing to the population. Absolutely. It's like saying, forget it. There's, you know, there's no point. There's nothing here. Could just go get high on drugs and just get pissed at the pub, and and that's your life. Like, there's, you're, you're never going to increase your income. No, that that's that. Get high on drugs. This, of course, is exactly what's going on in the UK and in the United States, particularly on opiates. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, oh, and where are those opiates coming from, by the way? Uh, well, for the UK at least, they're coming from Afghanistan. Mm. And and there's a correlation between opium, the growth of the opium production and distribution, and the lowering of the opium price with the NATO occupation of Afghanistan. There's been a correlation there that we could probably say is causal. Uh, without question. Yeah. Without question. That's interesting. Well, no one really puts those two together because that's not, that's not good cricket, is it? It, it is. It, it it is fascinating to me, Patrick, that that Afghanistan is producing, uh, you know, double this year. Afghanistan will produce double the uh, tonnage of opium uh, than it ever produced before the NATO uh, invasion. Right. To more than double, actually. No, I think I think I think it is I think it is exactly double. So okay. I think the highest the highest uh, uh, output from the pre two thousand and one uh, Taliban regime was four and a half thousand tons. This year they're going to have nine thousand tons. Mm-hmm. Uh, two thousand and one, of course, the Taliban decided that opium production was was no longer work with with uh, with Islam, so they stopped it for that year, and then we immediately went in and invaded because we couldn't deal with the you know our banking system couldn't deal with the fact that the availability had uh, tanked in the uh, on the global opium market where the, the money laundering from HSBC and the rest is uh, an important part of their business. Well, plus, the, plus the plus the the price skyrocketed, so all, even even the hardcore junkies were like, I can't afford this anymore. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> they started smoking pot, and that was like, so you know, so in, in the U.S. Uh, we ha- we the- and in the UK we've got epidemic levels in the US now opium opi- the deaths from opiates from heroin oh, it's, it's it's it is now the biggest killer it's bigger killer than guns a bigger okay. killer than guns in the United States so the question Mike is and here's and this is an important question going forward for British society for European society for American society for the Anglo-American Empire okay the question going forward is Mike why are people flocking to opiates why are they flocking to that escape what is missing what is creating the vacuum in their life what's missing is productive productive jobs what's missing is the idea of a future of building a future for yourself for your family this generation what have we got you know a meaningful life our, our generation a meaningful society a meaningful existence 
you're saying that's missing. Absolutely missing. Right. When your parents were growing up, when my parents were growing up, they were growing up with the idea that, 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 that you and I would have a better life than they had. We would go to university. We would do this. We would do that. What, what as, as future generations come on, we don't have this idea. You and I aren't even going to have a pension. Right, we're not going to have anything to leave to our to the next generation in, when we die. Yeah, Social Security in America is 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 bankrupt. Right, my parents, my parents' generation, uh, so the baby boomers and whatnot, as they start to die out, uh, what's going to happen over the next number of years is that the assets that they've built in their lives are going to be taken to pay for their social care. Absolutely. Right. So Absolutely. So, so am I going to get anything from, from my parents? I don't know. Are, are my children going to get anything from me? Absolutely not. Mm-hmm. Absolutely not. Because because uh, we are not getting the opportunity to build uh, for the next generation the way that we did in the past. Yeah. No. Well, the, the people who ha- it has benefited are the asset strippers, the asset stripping class, the, uh, the, 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 top, the top of the sort of the corporateer. Uh, corporateers, they're definitely benefiting from the system of globalization, okay? And certain people are benefiting, but what it it is, it's it's taken the, it's ripped the heart, it's ripped the guts out of uh, Europe and North America. So it's it's helped to create a super oligarchy class, okay? But for everybody else, it's basically pulled the rug out from under them. Everyone's wondering how Trump got elected. Hello. <laughs> all those unemployed people who had a job for life, who had that promise, that yes. generational promise of of hope for the next generation. If you play by the rules, you you will do as well or better than the previous generation. Okay, this is the American dream that you're talking about that yeah. never really existed. Well, it existed for some, and it existed for a time, uh, but it does no longer exist but it's still the rhetoric is still there it's still it's a mythology that a lot of people will fall back on and every four years mike people will they they, they'll ride some knight in shiny armor will ride up and basically uh take this idea of the american dream and repackage it in such a way that's just good enough to capture the imagination of certain voting segments and that will help them get into office or at least close to into office uh, and so who is that? It was Donald Trump last uh, last election. Hillary didn't articulate this well enough. She just thought that she could get in with celebrity uh, uh, endorsements from uh, Kate Perry, Katy Perry and Morgan Freeman and and uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Demi Moore that, and Ashton Kutcher uh, making uh, videos about. I pledge, I pledge not to, you know, not to flush the toilet, you know, <laughs> every other time. You know, Hillary thought that was good enough, right? Donald Trump actually took it, captured it, packaged it, sold it, and got him into office. So, but as each gener- as each four years rolls by, Mike, and that dream seems farther and farther, it's more of a distant mirage. That idea, that alchemy to to take the to capture the media, the mythology of the American dream to media package it, that becomes more of a difficult task because the actual reality of it is just not there. Well, that's that is absolutely true, but it becomes a more difficult task because the media is increasingly unwilling to to think in these positive terms and to package it appropriately. Uh, Trump has just been to the Far East over the last couple since the last time I was on this program. True. Uh, and uh, what? How did the West present that? The West presented that in either they didn't cover it properly at all, or it was just hugely negative. Oh my God! Donald Trump's been tweeting from behind the Chinese firewall. This is terrible. 
you know, there was no, in fact, what happened was, was extremely positive. Mm-hmm. Now, whether, whether the United States gets on board with the Belt and Road Initiative, I don't know. That still remains to be seen. Uh, but, uh, and, uh, but the way that the, the, that the media is portraying this, there is no positive message for the average uh, reader of, of the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times. No, because the agenda that the media is setting is a toxic agenda, and it's, get, it's, it's becoming more evident to me and to you, Mike, and many others. It's just complete toxicity from day to day. And we talked we'll, – we'll, I'm going to go back a little bit, and we'll talk about this um, resilient cities um, – this idea of resilience, we need they're promoting resilience in Britain, and people need to be resilient. This is what the the media is also on board with this sort of rhetoric as well, pushing these government talking points. Let's talk about resilience for a minute, okay? Let's talk about resilience. I'll tell you who's got resilience. If you want to learn about resilience, then go to Syria, go to Iraq, and go meet the people there. Go talk to them, see what they've been having to put up with for the last how many years, for Iraq much longer, but uh, in Syria since 2011 especially. And you want to you learn about resilience in culture, uh, in society, as individuals as well, and institutions and resilient governments. They talk about having a resilient government here. Everyone falls to pieces if, if, if someone drives their car on, a, on, a, on a, a bit of pavement and runs around with a kitchen knife and all of a sudden in the whole city's on lockdown. They, they just had a bombing in the Sinai Peninsula in Egypt, Mike, this week. 300-plus people were killed and many more injured. And that doesn't even get an afterthought. From people in this country. We have no idea what resilience means. We don't even understand the concept of it. And, and we could begin by understanding that if we would acknowledge what the people have endured and had to suffer on, on, on behalf of, at the behest of our government's activities. Okay, so so ever in the, Syria and Iraq to start with. Everything you said there is absolutely correct and it's absolutely uh important that the people get to grips with what you've said there but of course what we're talking about is two different things your definition of resilient and the definition of resilient that i've been talking about that these people are pushing through their various agenda programs these are same word but it has two meanings mm-hmm. uh, and you you are talking about people's genuine resilience this is they have experienced x y and z and they've responded to it in this way and they've demonstrated absolute resilience um, what's dangerous is when a politician like Theresa May stands up and talks about resilience and your concept of, res- of resilience is how you've defined it. Uh, how you're, the Patrick Henningsen definition, which is, the correct de- is a correct definition, is the correct definition, but it's not Theresa May's definition. No. And people have got to try to understand that when they use words that to you and I mean one thing, they don't. It, that's not their. That's not how they understand those same words. We've got to try and get to grips with their use of language because mm-hmm. it's a, it might sound like English, but it's not English. What I'm doing is I'm I'm trying to be, uh, reclaim that language from what I think is a misuse of that language, and it's even deeper than what I just described. I'll tell you how deep this resilient term that I'm putting forth goes. These people in Syria and Iraq have had to be resilient. Okay, fighting. 
on our behalf, they have contained a problem that could have spread far beyond their borders. They've contained it and defeated it, and this week have defeated it in Syria. Well, have they? they because, because I haven't seen anything about that. Oh, you haven't seen that on the news, have no, you? No, I haven't. Yes, ISIS was defeated in Syria this week, and it was defeated in Iraq uh, last the week to two weeks before. Okay, and and this is ISIS not the biggest big announcement to the world now, and a big rhetorical question to everybody in the ACR chat room and everybody out in the just known universe. Was there any bigger story than ISIS, Mike, since nine eleven? Is there any bigger story than ISIS since 9-11? Uh, well, if, if, if ISIS, if you believe ISIS is the enemy, then this is something that we should all be celebrating. But if you are... The main, biggest story. Mainstream media and perhaps... This, I, this is like... It was Jihadi John every two seconds for but, like three years straight, right? And fear and resilience and Britain strong and oh, this and Paris strong. And all of a sudden, ISIS has been crushed by... By, by, by the people of Iraq who, who have fought and, and shed blood and the people of Syria who've, and their allies and Iran, Iranians and Hezbollah and the Russians who fought and, and shed blood on behalf to win that fight to, in this epic battle. This is biblical. It is historical. But you and, just, and, and it's not in the papers because it's, it's now unwarranted as a non-story no, no, no. by you've, the West. You've just hit the nail on the head. It's been a cash cow for the papers for the last X years. Oh, they, and, oh they've done very they, well out of it. And yeah. it's gone. Why would they celebrate? It's, it's out gone. with a whimper. It's gone with, where is ISIS? Where is the st- ISIS, ISIS, ISIS? We couldn't get an ISIS, ISIS, ISIS. Parades of experts. ISIS, all ISIS experts. There's a whole class of security journalists that are like experts on ISIS. Where are they? Well, they're unemployed. Where are they? They're they're out of a job. Yeah, and the U.S. has no raison d'être to be in Syria anymore. They're trying to make up. Even Trump's basically backed off of his support of the Kurds. Yeah. This week, and the Kurds are all like, "Oh my God, this is terrible." We we've been, <laughs> and I'm just laughing at all the analysts, especially the Russian ones, who said this was going to happen. By the way, yeah. they said the Kurds are going to be left out <laughs> in the cold once again. When yeah. will they learn? Yeah. And sure, sure enough, it's happened. They were used to get an agenda down the road, and as soon if they if they made it or not, the Kurds were then dumped. Okay. So anyway, but I find that amazing, Mike. Um, you know, this this is the great. It's a great story. It's a great story for the people of Iraq. It's a great achievement. It's hard fought, and boy, do have they paid a price for it. Yeah, and for the people of Syria as well. And also, they've done that for the people of Europe. They've done us a favor. And by the way, they've they've done that knowing that ISIS has received support financially, uh, weapons wise, from. NATO member states from Saudi Arabia, from the Gulf states. They know all this. They're not stupid. They totally know every aspect of this, Mike, in those countries. They can't afford to be totally ignorant about it like we can afford to be in the West, in Europe. So they're they're not playing this sort of illusion in the media that ISIS is this kind of grassroots Islamic uh, phenomenon that just sprung out of the sands of... Of, of of the desert and uh you know they're I, some ideological terrorist force right they know it's a foreign backed effort and so why are we so why are we not uh, why are we not congratulating them mike for for winning the war 
because we didn't win it, because we flew around and did some air sorties. And, and by the way, the United States, the Iraqi government got billed for every single air sorties that the United States flew in the fight against ISIS. They paid for it, by the way. Wasn't wasn't a charity. A lot of people don't know that. Well, I didn't know that. I didn't know that until I heard that when I was in Baghdad. Wow. Yeah, and I, I'm absolutely factual. That's not a conspiracy. That's true. That's kind of a big, kind of interesting well, it's, major point. <laughs> it's disgusting, Patrick. It sort of puts things in perspective, isn't it? So, so we we put our the West, Britain, and the United States. We put our mercenary, uh, our mercenaries into the country. And then we charge the country for dealing with the mercenaries that we put in the first place. What a business model. This is a good business model. Wow. I like this has got potential for a really good business model. Very sustainable as well, if you think about it. So look, we're gonna take a we're gonna take a short uh, commercial break here on alternate current radio and catch our breath after that massive rant. I'm here in studio with Mike Robinson and uh, I'm Patrick Henningson, your host. This is the Sunday Wire. We'll be right back after these messages with even more outrageous rants. Stay tuned. <laughs> 